All right, let's open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. We'll see how far we get, uh, Joshua 22 and perhaps 23 tonight. We've only got three more chapters left in the book of Joshua, and I'm hoping by next Thursday we will wrap up our time in the book of Joshua. And when I come back from Israel on the 12th of March, uh, the following Thursday, we'll begin the book of Judges, which is going to be an exciting book. Um, it's exciting, and it's also very discouraging, actually, because we're gonna, we see the, uh, the beginnings of of this kind of um, a rebellion, really, in the heart of God's people. And if you think of it, there's really nothing new under the sun. Solomon said that. There's really nothing new under the sun. And people are people, regardless of what race you're from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter if you're Italian, if you're Russian, if you're Jewish, if you're Arabic. It doesn't matter what you are, the heart of man apart from Christ is bent on rebellion and disobedience. And I know that because I tried to prove him wrong for 24 years of my life. And there came a point where I I said, uncle, (laughs) meaning I gave up because I I wanted God to have my life. I wanted Jesus Christ to have my life. And I pray that he's got all of you, not just a part of you, but I pray that he's got all of you. And if there's any part of you that is not his, I would encourage you tonight, before you leave here, to be sincere and to say, Lord, there's areas that I've not allowed you to come in. There are things in my life that I like very much, Lord, and there's things that I've got my hand tightly around that I don't want you to relinquish my grip. I want to have control over this area, over this area. But can I tell you tonight that the the greatest thing you're going to experience is when you release your hands off the steering wheel and be sitting in the back seat and let Jesus drive the car. Let him drive your life because you will be in a more blessed place by letting him guide and direct you rather than you trying to always control your life. And that's a secret blessing and that's a secret that very few people come to know is to relinquish control. And in a world that is so chaotic and so difficult, it is very natural to tighten the hatches, to batten down the hatches, to become more confident and assured in yourself and to take matters into your own hands. It's very tempting in the days that we live in, but it's the exact opposite is what we need to do. And especially as Christians, we have to learn that now. And there is a blessing attached to that. And so tonight, as we get into Joshua chapter 22, you remember last week we looked at chapters 20 and 21. And 20, if you remember, was the cities of refuge. They were three on each side of the Jordan River, and they were for the manslayer, for somebody who inadvertently killed somebody by accident. They could flee to one of these cities, and these cities were Levitical cities, and they could go to these cities, and they could get a a right judgment. They could get uh, a right trial, if you will. And if they were indeed a manslayer and did it out of cold blood, they would be released to the manslayer, and that manslayer would put them to death. But if they were indeed innocent they would be able to stay in that town. As long as they didn't go outside the city gates, they were safe inside. And so they had to stay there until the death of the high priest. And we looked at that in relationship with how Jesus Christ is our high priest, that in him, because we're in him, because of what he did on the cross, Jesus is that high priest for us. And we looked at the similarities between those things and Christ. And then in chapter 21, we looked at the, the different cities, the 48 cities specifically that the Levites had. Remember, the Levites didn't have an inheritance like the rest of the children of Israel. The other tribes, they all received cities and, and allotments of land, but the Levites did not because God was their inheritance. The ministry was their inheritance, and so they did not receive an inheritance per se, but they were given cities within the boundaries of those other tribes that they could live in. They didn't own them, but they could live there, and they also had uh, common ground or uh, a common area around these cities where they could grow their uh, and, and, and bring up their livestock, and they, obviously they would need livestock like calves and, and lambs and goats because of the sacrifices. They would need to raise those animals. And there would need to be a lot of them, wouldn't they? And so we looked at that. And then so finally, 
We're going to look at chapter 22 tonight. And so God fulfills all the promises that he had given to them. In fact, if you look in the very last few verses of chapter 21, this is a nice segue into 22. It says uh, in verse 43 of chapter 21, it says, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they dwelt in it. And the Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand, and not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. Notice, underline this, all came to pass. Now, we know that all the people in the land that were supposed to be driven out weren't completely driven out, right? But God promised them that he would drive out the enemy. He would drive out these nations that had been involved in flagrant and wicked uh, idolatry for hundreds of years. God drove them out by hornets, and uh, God gave them that land. But as they went in to inherit those different pieces of land, it was their responsibility, after the big battles have, have been taken place, they were supposed to go in and finish the job. And we know that they did not do that. In fact, when we get into Judges, we're going to see the horrible record that we have here. And they learned it, I believe, going all the way back in, in Joshua chapter 9, where it talks about the, the Gabeans and how the Gabeans deceived them. And they learned that instead of wiping out the enemy, they could put the enemy to tribute, meaning make them slaves, make them hewers of wood and fetchers of water. If they would do that, and they learned the convenience of having an enemy that they could, they could um, push around, or not, maybe not push around, but to have them as... Uh, as uh, forced labor, okay? And so, here we are in chapter 22. And so, after all these lands, all these places have been inhabited, everybody gets their inheritance, and now, finally, those two and a half tribes, uh, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, remember, those were the two tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan River that decided when they, before they even crossed the Jordan River to begin with, they looked at that land and they thought it was good, and God allowed them to, to settle into that land. It wasn't his perfect will, I believe. I believe it was his permissible will. And there's a difference between permissive will and perfect will. Do you understand the difference? One is God will allow you. It's, it's not something that he designed for you. He had actually something better for you. And it, and it literally is like this. It's like him giving you gold and saying, I want to give you a gold bar that weighs 50 pounds. Or you could have a bronze bar that weighs 50 pounds. I'll take the bronze bar. Are you kidding? Bronze is like worth next to nothing. But a 50-pound gold bar would, would be enough to do a lot of things. But see, that's what we settle for. God's perfect will is to give you the very best, and we settle for the little squeaky-wheeled car where the fan belt's always blowing out after every couple hundred miles. We settle for that, and God says, did you know that I really wanted to give you a really nice car, one that wouldn't break down, and yet you're settling for this 30-year-old Yugo? Are you serious? It's been beat up by a Rochester weather. There's holes all over it. And the floorboard, you can see through it. Are you Barney Rubble? I mean, and so we settle. It's, you know, God has a perfect will, and he has a permissive will. And God forbid that we should settle for his permissive will, because the greatest blessing is in his perfect will. But sometimes we're hasty, and we want what we want, and we want it now. And God says, okay. Is that what you really want? Yes, Lord, it's what I really want. I want that so bad. I saw it with my own eyes. Got to have it. Got to have it. Got to have it. My heart is set on it, Lord. And he's like, okay. Try to convince you otherwise, but if you, if you must have it, I'll give it to you. And so we take it. And that's exactly what these tribes did. That's what Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that's exactly what they did. So let's get into verse 1. It says, So then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but you have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. 
And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he promised them. Now, therefore, return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So remember, they're on the western side of the Jordan. Now that, because the, the deal was is that they're supposed to help their brethren get into their inheritance. And once that inheritance was, uh, was secured, because they needed men to go out into battle, and they would help the other tribes get settled into their area, because they, they, these two and a half tribes have already settled on the eastern side. So it's only fair that they go and help their brothers, right? So now that they're on the west side, now after all this is settled, you know, Joshua tells them, okay, great, you, you've, you, you've done what you said you were going to do. Now you can go back. And I love this in, in verses 1 through 4, that those two and a half tribes, they were faithful to what God had told them to do. They were faithful. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 32. We're just going to look at a handful of verses here. Numbers 32, because this is what their desire was and, and, and what they were commanded to do if they chose that eastern inheritance. And just by way of review, let's just go through it really quick. There's only a handful of verses. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 and then 20 through 24 of Numbers 32. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. Now remember, this is a, we're reading in a place before, uh, before they actually crossed over the Jordan. Okay, so this is back when, before they'd even crossed over. So the children of Reuben, Gad, had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw, notice, underline, when they saw. And I think something in this, I, I don't want to make a, too big of a deal of this, but when they saw, it was something that they captured their eye. And whenever something captures your eye, you'd better be careful. You better make sure that it's of the Lord. Because most of the time in the Bible, when something is seen and is desired, we see that in the garden, right? That Eve looked at the fruit. She saw that it was good. It was pleasant to the eyes. To make one wise. And it was the death of them. But she saw with her eyes. And, 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 I, and I believe... As you see this, underline when they saw, because this is part of their undoing, because they saw something, and it wasn't a bad thing in and of itself, but again, remember, God's perfect will and his permissive will. He really wanted all of them to go over the Jordan and settle on the western side, but this, these two and a half tribes, oh, this looks really good. Want this. So it says, and when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elialiah, Shabam, Nebo, and Baon, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock. In other words, it's suited for livestock. You look at this land and it's like got livestock all over it. And your servants have livestock. So therefore they said, verse 5, If we have found favor in your sight, Moses, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. So already they're, they're in this place of, yes, this is really great. It, it can't be any really better than this. I mean, this is the place to have livestock. And yet God, I believe, had something even better for them. And certainly they would have been more blessed if they would have stuck with their brothers and went over the Jordan. But they, they saw it with their eyes. Had to have it. So they said, can we have it? Pretty please, with a cherry on top. I'll give you my G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. And Moses says, he talks to the Lord, and Moses said to the children, verse 6, to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into a land which the Lord has given them? Are you serious? You want to stay here, and everybody else is going to go over and fight, and you guys are going to hang out here where there's no battle? I mean, the battle's already been done. In fact, God drove them out. They didn't really have to do a whole lot. And so now you want to just sit here? Moses is saying, I don't think so. I don't think so. Go down with me to verse 20 of that same chapter, and it says, Then Moses said to them, 
So they agreed, actually, in, in the verses in between, they agreed to go over and fight with their brothers. And then th- that way their kids and their wives, they can start settling into the land while the men of war go over the Jordan and help their brothers. And so in verse 20 it says, Moses said to them, So if you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all of your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before the, him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, and I would circle this verse, 32 or 23, but if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. And there's a verse to underline, because your sin will always find you out, no matter how tricky you think you are, no matter how experienced you are. Aren't we all masters at sin? Before we came to Christ, weren't you like trying? Like, you know, it's like some people say, well, I'm not really a practicing this. I'm not really a practicing that. And you're just like, well, well I'm, a, I'm a master at sin. If anybody can do it really good, man, I can do it, man. I've done everything and I, I can get away with it. Most of the time I can get away with it and I can even look good doing it. Right? And so we think that, right? We deceive ourselves. But notice, your sin will find you out. No matter what you're doing, given time, your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones, verse 24, and folds for your sheep, and do what has proceeded out of your mouth. And so they do that. So they make an agreement. Okay, we'll go over. And you know, I love this because the, the two and a half tribes, they're, even though they're misguided, I believe, they that their desire is to keep the promise to help their brothers. And it's very similar to how we should be in the church. I mean, if we look at the way that these men were, it's commendable. that They could have said, no, we're going to stay here, and that's it. You guys fight your own battle. But they, they went ahead. They were honorable, and they finished the job. They did. And, and it's like us, as, as the church. We ought to be the same way. We ought to be helping each other out. And especially in the day that we live in, so many people are desperate. You know, if you know somebody in the fellowship who's sick or maybe just had surgery, find out their number. You can always call. And, you know, sometimes we have numbers and you can call them. Go pay them a visit. You know, I don't know what's happened, but it, it just seems like as time is going on, it, it's like people, um, and, and not necessarily any of you per se, but it's just there's a, there's a lethargy. And, and we're not really taking care of each other the way we ought to, the way we should. And, and that starts with me. That starts with me. But notice what First Peter, let me just read this to you. It's First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. And, and again, just using these gentlemen as a, a, a good example here. Peter exhorts us, he says, Finally, all of you, and that's all of us, be of one mind having compassion for one another, love as brothers. Notice, be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. Don't you want somebody to be tender-hearted to you and to be courteous? And especially as Christ ones. That's really what a Christian is, is a Christ one. Someone who's governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And and that ought to be our heart. We ought to love as brothers. We ought to be tender-hearted. We ought to be courteous. And verse 9, he says, Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this. We were all called to a blessing, that you may inherit a blessing. Believe me, there's so many blessings that God is going, you're going to inherit by the Lord. And I, I think that when, when we finally realize those things and, and, and we... Uh, come into fruition to all those promises in God's kingdom, our hearts are going to be so overwhelmed that we're going to look back and say, Lord, I wished I would have understood. I wish I would have understood way back then the glories that I have now and that are even still ahead of me yet. Lord, if I had just considered it deeply, I would have changed so many different things. But we don't change. And I'm hoping tonight you will change. Because I think we're all changing, but sometimes I can be resistant. I can be like that dog on a leash. Instead of taking a dog for a walk, I'm taking the dog for a drag. I'm grabbing him by the leash, and he's got all four sticking out like this. And sometimes I'm like that with the Lord. Does that ring a bell with you sometimes? I think we're very similar, or can be anyway. Not that that's true for everyone. 
But notice what he says in verse 10 here. He says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are what? They're on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, so that's, this is what we are called to do. Just like those tribes, those two and a half tribes, they're going to go help their brothers. And certainly, they, they didn't even have the advantage that you and I have of the Spirit of God indwelling us if you're a believer in Christ. If you have the Spirit of God in you, that's something that the Old Testament believers never had. A permanent indwelling. The Spirit of God came upon them at times and caused them to do some really amazing things. But the Spirit of God did not indwell the believer until Christ, until his death and resurrection, until the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God will come upon us, but the Spirit of God needs to come in you. That's the only claim that you have to being a Christian, is if the Spirit of God is in you. In you. In 1 John chapter 3, finally, I just want to read one more passage here. 1 John 3, beginning in verse 16, it says, By this, John says, we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And just like these guys, they're going to lay down their lives, because they're going to go in and fight with their brothers. Maybe some of them wouldn't come back. I don't know the statistics. I don't know what the Bible tells us. There's really no mention of, of any lives being lost. You know, in certain, in certain engagements, they lost some. We know that at AI, they lost 36 men. But in the other ones, did they lose any? Don't know. The Bible doesn't really say. Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And see, that's what we got to return to. You may not have to lay down your physical life, but, you know, sometimes just being inconvenienced. Being inconvenienced for a little bit for someone else to really bless them, to really make their day, I tell you, is something that we ought to consider doing. Because if you're like me, sometimes I just get to the point where I'm like, you know, I don't want to be inconvenienced. I got my own plans today, and that's what I'm going to do. And God says... But I got a plan. When you woke up this morning, did you have, um, was your plan, what's, what, was that the thing that was on the altar of your heart today, Rob? Or am I allowed to intermingle in your day? Am I allowed to take control of your day even? Maybe I want you to do this. Maybe I want you to make that phone call. I know you don't want to make that phone call, but I want you to make that phone call. Maybe I want you to send flowers to this person. Maybe you need to write a card to somebody. Maybe you just need to give them a call. Send them a quick text. Hey, thinking of you, praying for you. And then pray for them. And then go about your day, Rob. But am I willing to be inconvenienced? But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so we, we, we're exhorted to love. We're exhorted to, to be compassionate and to love one another. Let's go on to verse 5 here in our text tonight. But notice what Joshua says. He says, Okay, but take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments and to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So you guys are going to go back, but you better be careful. And there's so much accountability in the Word of God, and that's what I love about the Word of God. It's like a broken record sometimes because it's replete with um, statements of, be careful, watch what you're doing. I told you in advance this is what's going to happen. Now, if you choose to do the wrong thing, this is what I'm going to do. But if you do the right thing, I'm also going to do all of those things. And so now you have the record right before you, and then the decision is yours. The decision is yours. And that's what Mo, or Joshua now here is telling these two and a half tribes. You better take careful heed, verse 5, to do the commandment. And so verse 6, Joshua blessed them and he sent them away and they went to their tents. Now to the half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. You remember on the, um, in the northern part up on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River at the, near the top there. Uh, by Mount Hermon, and on the right side of the Sea of Galilee, that was the half-tribe of Manasseh. That's one part of it. But the other half of it, Joshua gave a possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan, westward, just across the Jordan River, the, uh, another half-tribe of Manasseh, they, they had the other side. And he says, Indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. And he spoke to them, verse 8, saying, Return with much riches. Notice this. 
Circle this verse, because it's kind of important. And he spoke to them, saying, Return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very much clothing. And notice, underline this, divide the spoil of your enemies with who? Your brethren. You guys have been helping the the western tribes. You've helped them get into where they're going to be. Now I want you to take all that booty, all that stuff that you have obtained in those raids and in those things. I want you to take them back, and I want you to give them and, and, and divide that spoil with those that stayed behind, that stayed behind. In fact, I love this idea, this principle. And no doubt King David may have had this event uh, that we're reading tonight in mind when he made the men divide the spoils of war with those who guarded the stuff. Um, you don't have to go to First uh, Samuel 30, but I would have you just make a note of First Samuel chapter 30, and you can read it on your own. But let me just summarize it because it's really interesting because we know that uh, Saul, or I'm sorry, David was on the run from Saul. Uh, David had already been anointed king, and Saul was going after David. He was so insanely jealous of him. He hated him because he was a warrior. He was a gifted musician, and, and, and certainly the hand of God was upon him, and it was departing from Saul very quickly. And so Saul was hunting him like a, like a deer in the forest, hunting him. And you recall that David uh, was given a, a city by a Philistine king, and it was called Ziklag. And so David and his uh, 600 mighty men, and, and these men had wives. So their wives and their kids, they all hung out at Ziklag. And one of the times when they were out on a battle, uh, uh, apart from Ziklag, the Amalekites came up and they enclosed Ziklag, and they took David's two wives and all of the men, his mighty men, he took their wives, their sons and their daughters, took them captive. They didn't kill them, but they burned the city of Ziklag, and they took the, the people. And so when David and his mighty men come back, you know, they're, they're, uh, obviously they're going to go after um, the, the Amalekites. And before this war, there, there were 600 of them, and 200 of them were so uh, exhausted, they decided that they just couldn't do it, and so they stayed behind. But David took another 400 of those men, and they went after them. And the good news is that David recovered all. He recovered his wives. The men's wives and their sons and their daughters were all brought back to them. All their goods, all those things were brought back. But I love what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning in verse 21. It says, And David, he came to the 200 men. Uh, remember, they, they stayed behind watching the stuff while the 400 went out and engaged in the battle. And it says, David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Bezor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. And they then answered all the wicked men and the men of Belial, who were among the 400 that David had took with, taken with him. Um, he said, of those that went with David, and they said, because they were not with us, we will not give them anything of the spoil that we've recovered. In other words, these guys didn't go to war. We did. So guess what? They don't get nothing. We get everything. <laughs> right? It sounds, sounds all good, right? Because they went not with us, he will not give them any of, of the spoil that we had recovered, uh, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. But notice what David said. He says, you ought not to do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord has given us, who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came before us into your hand. And in verse 24, he lays it out. He says, for who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as, this, as his part is that goes down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarries by the stuff. They shall part alike. And it was so from that day forward that he made a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this very day. And where did David learn that from? I think it's very probable that he learned it from Joshua here. Encouraging those men, those people who stayed over on the eastern side as they brought the plunder from these battles, brought them back. They divided them with the people that stayed back. And I, I think David was a man of God's word, and we know that, that he was a man after God's own heart. If he was a man after God's own heart, that means David knew the Old Testament. He knew the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, much of the other, that, that, may be, that may have been all they had, but not very much else. But David knew. 
He knew what had happened. And so, verse 9 in our text, So the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they returned, departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh. Remember, Shiloh is this, uh, the very first place that they really settled down after all of the battles have done, after all the uh, partitioning of the land. They set up the tabernacle for the first time with the altar there at Shiloh. And you can read about that in Joshua 18. And the first couple verses there. So they departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead. Gilead is, uh, if you think of Israel, it's sort of like in the Jordan Valley, there is just like this depression in the land. Um, there's a depression in the land, and on each side of the Jordan Valley is, is a mountain range. And over here on the east side of the Jordan is uh, the Mount Gilead, or the Gilead. It's a mountain range. It's along the eastern side of the Jordan River. Um, and then, of course, over here on the other side, you have different mountain ranges. But the, everything on the west or on the east side is uh, Gilead. So they have attained according to uh, the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. But notice what happens, verse 10. The plot thickens. The key changes from G major to G minor. <laughs> Things start, start getting a little sideways. It says, and when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, so they're on their way back, right? So right as they get close to the Jordan River, about ready to cross over, they have a good thought, or at least they think. So the children of Gad and the Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they built an altar there by the Jordan, a great impressive altar. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side, so on the west side of the river. So verse 12, And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them, to go to war against their own brothers because they built an altar. Now, the question is, why? And that's a teaser because I'm not going to tell you yet. But notice how important communication is between people. These two and a half tribes could have said to Joshua and to the men, before they left, before they departed, they could have said to them, you know what, guys, this is what we want to do. And here's the reasoning behind it. And it probably could have avoided all of what we're going to read next. But they didn't communicate. It's kind of funny. I don't mean to be so hard on men, but, you know, uh, because I'm a man, I'll, I'll, I'll be hard on myself. It's kind of funny that these brothers, you know, communication probably wasn't their best suit. Instead of talking about their feelings, you know, I feel like, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the Lord might be putting on my heart to build an altar there, you know. I don't know. You know, they, they weren't really into feelings. They're just like, we're going. And so they, they grab their stuff and they go. Maybe the thought occurred to them as they're about ready to cross over, and, the, and it starts kicking in. The thought starts kicking in their mind. And because I believe in my heart that these two and a half tribes are starting to feel something at this point, and I think it was the Lord. And it wasn't a good thing, because they knew that if they didn't do something right here on this side of the Jordan, on the western side, and we're going to look at this shortly, that they were going to feel closed off. They were going to feel like nobody. They're going to feel like an, an ostracized. And because their heart had already drifted, because they saw the land, there was already something in there. There was a seed. There was a germ of sin. And I think the Lord was just going, you better be careful. But they didn't have to do this. Let's read on. So then the children of Israel, verse 13, they sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest of the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead. So the guys on the west go to the guys on the east, and with him ten rulers, one ruler each from, the child, uh, from each of the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of a house of his father among the divisions of Israel. Notice verse 15. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And then they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel, to turn away this day from following the Lord, and that you have built yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? So their rebellion was in building the altar. And you may be thinking to yourself, What do you mean? Well, the reason for the upheaval is that they were only to worship at one altar. 
at one altar. It was to be in Shiloh. Remember, the tabernacle had been set up in Shiloh. That's where the, that's where the altar was. That's where the sacrifices would take place. God told them, they all knew this, that is the place. That is the place. That is the place. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're going to look at the first 11 verses because you'll see why this was such a big deal and why this was such a provocation to war. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you to possess. Notice, all the, all the days that you live on the earth, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall possess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, and you shall destroy their altars, you shall break their sacred pillars and burn their wooden images, which are images of Ashtoreth, with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things." With such things. But notice in verse 5 But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and you shall go there. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which he you have put your, uh, put your um, excuse me, you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord God has blessed you. You shall not do as we are all doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes, for as yet you have not come into the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. Because remember, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, they hadn't crossed over the Jordan yet, so he's, he's telling them in advance, but when you cross over... But when you cross over the Jordan and, are, and dwell in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safely, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And there you shall bring all that I command you. Again, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vowed to the Lord. And so these are, this is the reason why there was such an upheaval. It was supposed to be in one place. And so they decide to make a, bring it upon themselves to make an altar. Now, had they even told them beforehand Guys, we're not, you know, this is the reason we're doing this. There was no communication. And look how communication, and especially between husband and wife, sometimes I feel like a husband and wife can be like, you know, these two and a half tribes and these others. You know, just no communication, so now we're at war with one another. And even in the body of Christ, how we need to communicate. You know, we've got these devices, and we can communicate in so many different ways, and yet communication is the thing that's still suffering. I find it interesting that two people can be uh, in a restaurant. I'll never forget uh, a year or two ago, my wife and I were in a restaurant here in Penfield, and an older couple than us, I mean, they were probably in their 60s, and they're both sitting down at their table, and they both got their phones. And they're like, they're on a date. And, and, and she's updating her Facebook. He's doing something else. And every now and then they'd say, hey, what are you going to order? And then back they go. And I'm like, they're communicating with everybody else but not with the person they love. So anyway. Ugh. So throw the phone against the wall and communicate. Now, this is what got Jeroboam in such trouble. You remember after the after David died and Solomon took over, remember when Solomon passed away, he had a son named Rehoboam. And after Solomon died, that is when the kingdom of Israel split in two, uh, to ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Jeroboam, one of his generals, one of Solomon's generals, took over those ten northern tribes, and, and um, Rehoboam was really over Judah and Jerusalem. But what did Jeroboam do? What was the thing that got him into trouble in fact, the Lord was so angry with this man for what he did. He built two altars because the southern two tribes had what? Jerusalem, and that's where, the, that's where the tabernacle was. That's where everything was supposed to take place. But Jeroboam is thinking to himself, 
hmm, I got 10 tribes. I better think of something quick or everyone's going to want to go down there. So he hatches a plan. Let's build an altar in Bethel, and then we'll build another one up in Dan, and then we'll put two golden calves, and we'll put on one of those crystal balls, you know, those things that revolve around it, and it'll hit the gold, and it'll just be like, uh, uh, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be a dazzling display. Everyone will be happy. Everyone will feel good inside, and they'll come back, and they'll come back, and, and we'll even get a good band, some electric guitars and some smoke coming off the stage. Feed them lots of cotton candy. Get them all doped up on sugar. Lights. <laughs> of course, I'm having fun with this, aren't I? But you get the idea. So he got into serious trouble because idolatry, idolatry. And so the seed of it was back here. Thank God that the, the two and a half tribes, their heart wasn't really so. And besides, it wasn't really necessary that they built this altar. And why do I say that? Because what it says in Exodus 23, just write this reference down. Exodus 23, verses 14 through 17. And this is what it says. And this is why the, the, the altar wasn't necessary. Because what did God tell them many, many years prior to this? He said, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days. And this included the Passover, by the way. As I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Aviv, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And for the feast of harvest, or first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, which... Uh, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field, three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. That means the guys on the eastern side, too. Three times in a year, they were to come over to Israel, over to Shiloh, until the altar, before, um, until it went into Jerusalem. So, verse 17, they said, Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us, for which you are not cleansed? from which we are not cleansed until this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord. We won't go here, of course, uh, for time's sake, but um, what he's referring to here, Joshua, is what happened in Numbers 22 through 25. Balak, the, the, the king of Moab, hired Balaam, a prophet, to curse the children of Israel. Of course, he did not do it. Rather, God overruled the prophet, who was uh, guilty of... Uh, his heart wasn't quite right. He, he loved things. He liked money. But one thing that Balaam did do is he told Balak, he said, hey, listen, if you really want to get these, if you want God to curse them, he's going to have to do it. They're going to have to bring it upon themselves, and here's how you do it. Get some of those cute Moabite girls to come out and hang out with the Hebrew boys. That'll do the trick. Trust me. And certain, certainly he did. You can read Numbers 25, and that's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. And so this is what he's talking about here. So in verse 18, but that, you must, um, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord, and it shall be if you rebel today against the Lord that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord. <laughs> and there it is, right? If you guys aren't happy with the land over on the east, then why don't you just come over here on the west? There's plenty of land. We can, we can draw up, cast lots again and, and draw up another map, and easily you guys can fit in here. There's enough land. You can come in. God will make it happen. That was his original plan. That was his original desire. That was his perfect will. But you settled for his permissive will. So there you are, already feeling guilty and already on the slippery slope of sin. Nevertheless... Oh, verse 20, excuse me. He says, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing? And wrath fell on the congregation of Israel, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. What he's talking about here is what happened in Joshua chapter 7. Remember, after they had conquered Jericho, one of the men, Achan, he took a wedge of gold and a wedge of silver and a Babylonish garment. He stole it. He wasn't supposed to take anything in this battle, but he did. God told them not to touch anything. It was, everything was going to be dedicated to the Lord for his purposes. But Achan took it, remember. And not only was Israel paid the price for it, because the very next battle in Ai, they go up to the battle. 36 men of Israel died, which is not really a lot considering how many of the enemy died. 
But 36 men of the Israelites died, and not only did Achan himself, but his whole entire family, his wives, his children, they were all stoned, and then they were burned. And their things were buried. So his sin, and, and, and there's, there's reason to believe his whole family was actually complicit in this, so it's not like some kind of cruel thing. But notice in verse 21 now, it says, Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows, and let Israel know itself. If it is in rebellion or if, 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 if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. So these two and a half tribes are saying, Listen, we don't, there's nothing in our heart to do wrong here. And this is where they start to explain what their intentions were. He says in verse 23, If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. So thank God these guys weren't as twisted and, and deranged as their brothers thought they were. Isn't that, isn't that kind of interesting? We always think the, emo, the most evil thing, and, and I guess I can't really blame them, because they weren't supposed to build an altar, and certainly, they could probably stand up on one of the mountains over in, in Judah and look over and see over there by the Jordan and go, what is that thing they're building? It looks like the Taj Mahal. What are they doing? They're building this huge altar down there. Oh, they're going to get it. No sooner, you know, and you can already see the, the angst in their heart, the, you know, the, 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 the suspicion building in their hearts. I knew it wouldn't be long. These guys on the western or the eastern side, I knew it wouldn't be long. I knew it wouldn't be long before they had resort to this darkness. Luke, I am your father. And they're just bringing them over, you know, and, and, and they're all thinking the most evil thing. I knew that they would do it. You can, you can almost feel it because of the way they responded to them. But in fact, they said, if we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying in time to come, or I'm sorry, excuse me, but in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? And it's a very interesting thought, I guess. But if they were still were going to come over, you know, three times a year for the feast, this really still wouldn't be necessary, would it? But their fear is, once we get across over there, people are going to forget all about us. And then, then they're going to immediately think that it's us and them. It's not very hard to think that way, right? Anybody had that feeling, us and them kind of mentality? That's exactly what they're thinking. So they were fearing that. So therefore, in verse 26, let us now prepare to build an altar, an altar for ourselves, again, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you you people on the West and our generations after us, that we may perform the services of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, in other words, at Shiloh, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. So they did it. They wanted to feel part. They wanted to make sure that there was some kind of remnant, some kind of witness between the two of them. And again, it breaks your heart to think that they would be willing to settle for God's second when they, God's best was what he wanted for them. Can you already see the, the, whenever you do something that's God's permissive will, there's always regret. It's called buyer's remorse. Have you ever bought something and then you realize, oh, I wish I would have spent the extra 20 bucks and got the deluxe model. And so now they're starting to feel it. <laughs> they're starting to feel this. And I think it's the Lord because they're, 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 reaping, in a sense, what they've sown. And again, is it bad to have land? No, it's not, but it wasn't God's best. See, that's the difference. God's best and God's permissive. I would encourage you to take, the God's, take God's best. Don't settle for what's permissible. And we do it every day, uh, many of us. I know I have. I've settled for God's permissive will rather than his perfect will. Verse 29, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord. And turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, or for sacrifices beside the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. In other words, we know the altar is in Shiloh, guys. 
We know it's there. That's where it has to happen. That's where all the sacrifices have to happen. This is just a witness between us. We're not going to burn anything on it. We're not going to do anything. You know, and it's interesting, too, that as a result of this compromise with those two and a half tribes, they would be the first ones that would be taken captive. They would be the first ones to be taken captive by Assyria. Before the northern tribes were taken captive, those two and a half tribes were picked off. And they were also marauded. They, 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 they were, they were um, constantly invaded by the desert peoples from the south were always coming in and, in that area and, and creating problems for them. And ultimately, they would be taken away captive themselves. Now, when Phinehas, verse 30, the priests and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel, who were with him, heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke. It pleased them. So they finally understood what, the, what, what, the, what their intent was. The communication finally came out. They got the email. They got the text message. Oh, that's what you guys have planned to do. Oh, boy, am I glad. Because we were coming out after you. Because we knew that you guys were already falling away, and we were just going to take the sword and go after you. So, so it pleased them when they heard this, verse 31, Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, they said, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. Because here's the thing, God always treated them. If they were to sin on the, on the east side of the Jordan, God would hold them all accountable it's kind of unfair in a sense, but um, you know, he, they knew that the judgment of God would come even upon them if they continued to, to sin. And so Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the rulers, they returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, or at least they thought so anyway. And, and you see how God does, he, he, he used the whole, um, the whole nation of Israel and when one person did something, the rest of them paid a price for it. And there's something about that that is it's called accountability, isn't it? It's, 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 it's a way of God teaching uh, his people that it's important for you all to obtain, you know, all to adhere to this. Otherwise, it just spreads like leaven, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And, and so they had to Plagues and things of that nature throughout the Bible happen as a result of just one person doing something, and so they all suffer, unfortunately, for it. So the Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, verse 32, and the rulers, they returned from the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them, and I bet they were really excited to know that they didn't have to go out and fight their brothers. They've already been fighting other Canaanites. It'd be nice not to have to go and kill my brothers. <laughs> Can you imagine that? So the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God, and they spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. And then finally, verse 34, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness. In other words, Ed. That was the name of it, Ed. And it means witness. For it is a witness between us that the Lord is God, that the Lord is God. And so we're going to stop there tonight. We'll look at the last two chapters. They're shorter chapters uh, somewhat. Uh, next week we'll finish uh, the book of Joshua. It's been a great book, hasn't it? Just going through and you see a lot of your, um, I see a lot of myself actually, especially in my old nature and even as, as a Christian, you know, if we're not careful, we can allow these areas of the flesh to encroach upon us. And so it's always important to be uh, diligent um, and just as God had told the children of Israel, you know, when, when, they, when they came into their different inheritances, he told them, he says, now go in and finish the job. I've done my part. The big battles have been won. Now I want you to go in and I want you to finish the job. I want you to finish destroying those inhabitants because I've, it was God's judgment against those peoples. And why? Because God enjoys killing people? No, because of their sin. For hundreds of years... They had been doing these things, and God says, enough's enough. 
I want you, Israel, to dispossess them, wipe out everything. They deserve it. It's my judgment. And yet they got in there, and after the big battles are done, they had little pockets of enemies, little pockets of enemies. And instead of going, you know, I just am tired of war. Hey, go over there and pick up that piece of wood. And bring me that thing of water. Hmm, kind of like that. Everyone's going, hey, that is pretty nice. Hey, why don't you pick up that wood over there and bring it over here? And that pitcher of water, bring that over there. And so naturally these people who are destined for death are thinking to themselves, I think I like this deal a little better. I don't have a problem with that. Hewers of wood, fetchers of water, and that caught on. And then all of a sudden we're going to look, and when we get into judges, we're going to see that that thing, that thing that happened in Gibeon, that wicked little compromise started to spread all throughout the tribes. It was like the coronavirus <laughs> over there. It just infected everyone, and they're like, this is a really good deal. Let's not, let's not wipe out anybody else. Let's just put them to tribute. Let's make them work for us. And that was their undoing, do you understand? God's perfect will, wipe out everything, were they obedient to it? No, they, did, they were not. They decided to do their plan. And what was the result of that compromise? Going forward now, hundreds of years. Going forward, hundreds of years, what was the result of that compromise? It was the captivity of Judah and Israel. That's the result of it. They were led captive because of their idolatry, because these people groups that they were supposed to destroy, that God says, you need to do it. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18, I believe it is, or 18 through 20. Lest they teach you their ways, that's why I want you to go and destroy it. And them, lest they teach you their ways. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And then as time went on, they started marrying their, their daughters, and their sons married their daughters, and they're having happy families, and they're starting to worship. Hey, did you see my, you know, this teraphim that I've got, this little idol that my, we used to worship? Oh, really? What's it like? I don't know. Let's bow down before it. And then the next thing you know, they're worshiping these idols, and God is not pleased. And God is not pleased because he knows that it takes their heart away, and it brings his judgment, his wrath upon them. Because he loves them. He loves them, and he loves you and I, too. And that's why he gives us these things, to encourage us, to love on us. So what will you do? What is your response to all of this tonight as we, as we read and reason through these things? You know, you and I both, we have decisions to make tonight, tomorrow, the next day, the next week, next month. We have decisions to make. Are we going to pray? Are we going to seek the Lord? Are we going to ask for his will to be done and not our own, even though our will may be exactly what we want? Can I just tell you something that I had a desire in my life, and I'll end with this. I wanted to be something. I was headed in that direction, and the Lord intervened. I didn't even ask him. He intervened in my life, at a time in my life when I was going and doing my thing, and I thought that I was going to be more fulfilled by doing, going down this road for this vocation, and he interrupted me. He interrupted me. I didn't ask. He just came into my life, changed everything, just, and boy, am I so glad he did. Are you glad he did that for you? Did he intervene like that in your life? I'm so glad he did because you know what? His will for my life was so much better than I could have ever thought possible. And can I tell you that I'm more excited and blessed now than I could ever be. And even thinking about going back and doing what I was planning on doing, it would have been nothing compared to what he's even allowed me to do now. So blessed, so thankful, you know. Isn't that awesome? And see, he's no different with you. He's, we're, we're the same in his hand so don't settle for second best. Don't settle for the silver. Go for the gold. And I don't mean this in some kind of wealth, health and wealth gospel. No, no, no. What I mean is 
Let God have his best will, his perfect will done in your life. Don't settle for anything else. Begin to pray now, Lord, I want your perfect will done, not your permissive will in every area of my life. And when I make a mistake, God, you take control and you get me back on the path that I need to be on. And I'll be honest with you, if you start praying that way, things are going to change in your life for the better. And is it going to be without pain sometimes? Probably not. Is it going to be scary? Probably. But in the end, and even during the process, you're going to have a peace that the world cannot tell. They can't understand it. You can have a peace in the midst of things, and then when he finally brings it to fruition, you're going to be like, oh my, I am so unworthy, God. So unworthy. And that's just how much he loves us. Isn't that cool? Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you that uh, your plan for us is good, Lord. You have a great plan for each one of our lives. And Lord, it's our wonderful delight, our privilege to discover what it is that you have for us, Lord. And help us not to be afraid of what you might do, God, because each of us have a plan in your, in your kingdom. And, and Lord, you have a wonderful way of uniting our heart to whatever that thing is and, and, and giving us a purpose for the first time in our life, a real purpose, a real wonderful plan, Lord, that we couldn't even hatch ourselves. And it's so filled with blessings, God. And it's so filled with peace. Would you do that in each of our lives tonight? And all throughout this week, Lord, give us an unction, an understanding of every decision we make, whether it's of yours or whether it's of ours. And Lord, help us to submit to yours, your perfect will. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.